You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. Last week, we introduced the topic of bikes in wilderness. And if you missed the episode and you're not familiar with the topic, I strongly encourage you to go back an episode and have a listen. If you did listen to the last episode, then you'll know that this is part two of our three-part series. And before we get to this episode's interview, I came across something while reading last week that I wanted to share. It's from Robert Moore's book called On Trails, an Exploration. It's something that I thought was relevant to what we have and will continue to discuss for the next few episodes. Quote, It may sound strange, even sacrilegious to some, but in a very real way, wilderness is a human creation. We create it in the same sense that we create trails. We do not create the soil or the plants, the geology or the topology. Although we can and do shift these things, Instead, we delineate the place by defining its boundaries, its meaning, and its use. End quote. If you're interested in reading Robert Moore's book, then go to the brand new website, frontlinesmtb.com, and click on the book club page, where I'll be adding a new book every couple of months recommended by you. And this first recommendation comes from Christine Reed, previous guest and friend of the podcast, as well as the executive director of the North Shore Mountain Bike Association. If you're interested in purchasing any of the books that will be included in the Frontlines Book Club, then do so by clicking the book's cover on the website. From there, you can choose your format, including audiobook, or if you're like me, you can get an electronic version for your Kindle. And products purchased from links featured on FrontlinesMTB.com We'll provide the show with a financial kickback through Amazon's affiliate program and will ensure the longevity of the show. Now, without any further delay, I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 26 of Frontlines. The next two episodes of the show will be a little bit longer than most. And I'm confident that you'll agree that this topic is deserving of as much time as possible. And for those that weren't expecting a longer episode, there's always a pause button, but don't forget to come back and listen to the end. You'll want to hear all that my guest, Eric Melson, has to say. Eric is part of the Government Relations Department at the International Mountain Bicycling Association, or better known as IMBA. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brent. How are you? Good. So I really appreciate you uh, joining me today. Some of my past guests have cited you as, as being a key resource for uh, trail associations out in, uh, in Montana and Idaho. And so prior to your current position, uh, what was your previous role with IMBA? So my previous role at IMBA was the Associate Region Director for Idaho, Montana, and parts of Wyoming. And in that role, I was working with about a dozen chapters around those three states, sort of providing them with the business resources, um, strategic planning resources, uh, government relations and advocacy, federal planning process uh, resources to essentially grow and support local mountain bike organizations that were affiliated with IMBA. And that ranged from a ton of different things, whether it was, you know, board succession and growing a stronger board to doing some like, you know, long-term visioning and strategic planning to getting in the weeds about like a, a forest service planning process and how to navigate that and what relationships are needed and critical in the state offices to advance legislation that's friendly for mountain biking at the state level. Um, and also working with congressional delegates on mountain bike positive legislation the national level. So I kind of ran the gamut. To focus on the, the wilderness topic, one of the, the biggest examples of, of trail loss uh, in wilderness to, to mountain bikers and, and something that I think not just advocates out there familiar with, but all mountain bikers is the, the Boulder White Cloud area. And would you be able to just give us a little backstory? 
Yeah, definitely. It's a long story, but I think it's a really important story to tell and to to learn from. And just for some context for the listeners, like where the Boulder White Clouds are, it's an area about 700,000 acres large, uh, roadless land in central Idaho. It's north and east of Sun Valley and Ketchum, and it's like directly east of Stanley, Idaho, so right across the highway from the popular Sawtooth Mountains and Wilderness Area. It's a pretty spectacular landscape. Several major rivers start here, the East Fork of the Salmon, the Big Wood, the Big Loft. There's like 100 alpine lakes and over 150 peaks above 10,000 feet. And it's also home to the highest salmon spawning grounds in the lower 48. So it's a it's a spectacular, spectacular area, and it's it's loved by a lot of people. There's there's a ton of people that go there, and it's you know it's it's long been considered a premier recreation area, you know, for hiking and backpacking and motorcycle riding and ATVs, uh, mountain biking, snowmobiling, skiing, horseback riding, hunting, fishing. I mean, you, you name it. The Boulder White Clouds provide a world class recreation opportunity for a lot of people. There's also a lot of ranchers and cattle operators on the landscape as well. And several of those lessees, the, the leases go back five, six generations. So there's a, there's a ton of history and it's, it's sort of like a, you know, it's a working landscape. From like a timeline standpoint, we really need to start in 1972. That's when the Sawtooth National Recreation Areas Act passed and that created the Sawtooth National Recreation Area, and Wilderness. Included in that bill, Congress also set aside half of the Boulder White Clouds as part of that National Recreation Area. And that placed some restrictions on existing uses and also previous uses. And when you think about central Idaho in the context of natural resources, it's a very mineral-rich area. During the war efforts in the 40s, there was a lot of mining exploration, and that's actually one of the reasons that the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness was passed, um, was to prevent sort of a roughshod effort of mining exploration. And there's a ton of minerals in the area, molybdenum and tungsten and cadmium. And part of the reason why Congress decided to expand the boundary of the National Recreation Area in the sawtooths into the Boulder White Cloud was to prevent uh, mining. And Castle Peak, uh, one of the trails that we'll talk about in a little bit, when you go over Castle Divide, there's actually a road that was punched in there way back in the day. And there's a landing pad um, where a mine uh, was proposed to go in. So the 1972 Sawtooth National Recreation Areas Act prevented that from happening. So we owe a debt of gratitude to Congress um, back in 72 from keeping the area pristine. You know, in the in the late 80s, early 90s, mountain bikers from Boise and um, and Stanley and, and Ketchum and Salmon and Sun Valley all started to take their mountain bikes into the hills and explore the Boulder White Clouds. And they mountain biking became established in the area, mostly on motorized routes since, you know, motorbikes were being used back in there uh, those were the trails that were being maintained, and that's what mountain bikers generally wrote. So in the late 90s, Congressman Mike Simpson is elected, and one of the first things that he does is he, he kind of surveys the landscape in Idaho, and he wants to do something good, and he, he creates a collaborative working group to look at central Idaho um, economic development, and the Boulder White Clouds are included in this landscape. and he crafts a bill called CEDRA, and it stands for the Central Idaho Economic Development and Recreation Act. And the collaborative included, in the beginning, stakeholders from the ranching community, from a conservation community, from local land owners and counties, and from the recreation community. Mostly at that time, it was the motorized folks, but snowmobilers were involved as well. So, CEDRA's goal was to clarify and sort of solidify the current uses and remove any of the uncertainty. The biggest pressures in the collaborative were coming from the ranching community. They were worried that their leases were going to be terminated. And, you know, the conservation community at the same time wanted additional protections in the Boulder White Clouds, massive, you know, 500, 700,000 acre 
uh, roadless area that that could be wilderness one day. And then the recreation community wanted access. So the motorized community, the snowmobilers, and at this point, the mountain bikers. Mining, again, uh, extractive industries had an, had an interest here. Those leases uh, go all the way back to you know, the 1872 mining law. And there's, there's a lot of uncertainty in the landscape. So that this bill aimed to sort of keep the landscape as it was, if not improve it and get rid of that uncertainty. So Simpson introduces CEDRA uh, in 2004. After many, many years of this roundtable collaborative discussion, the bill went nowhere. And it actually got reintroduced every single year from 2004 until 2013. So this bill has a 10-year legislative history, and it kept falling in the same sort of pattern. It would get introduced, maybe it would get a hearing, maybe it wouldn't get a hearing, and it would sort of die. It would, it would not go anywhere. That was mostly because the collaborative groups just could never really come up with a 100% consensus-based decision. But Congress also didn't really have an appetite of passing wilderness in that time frame. The political stars really have to be aligned to pass a wilderness bill. And in the 10 years that Congressman Simpson was trying to get this bill passed, it just it just never happened. Around the last you know iterations of CEDRA, the, the local chapter of IMBA, uh, the Wood River Bike Coalition, started to get involved. The traction for CEDRA was gaining. There were more public meetings about CEDRA. I think at this point, Lindsay Slater, who is Congressman Simpson's staffer, said that there were over 200 public meetings. Uh, the mountain bikers started to get involved and, you know, their, their interest was piqued. Well, what's going to happen to our trails back there? This is one of our favorite areas to ride. Like this is some of the most iconic sort of backcountry riding in North America. We want to make sure that we have protections on our trails. So the Wood River Bike Coalition enters the fold, 2012, 2013, and the collaborative expands to include a bunch of other interests. And they're, as, as they're working this out, a strategy sort of emerges. President Obama had been designating national monuments on sort of a, 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 a monumental scale, if you will, for lack of a better pun. But uh, he, had, he had just gone on this tear of designating monuments all over the country. He, San Gabriel's, you know, the Oregon Mountains, the uh, Pacific Remote Islands, Browns Canyon, all, all said and done, Obama uh, designated 33 monuments uh, in, his, in his years in office. And there's momentum building behind this monument. You know, CEDRA has never worked. Its legislative history shows that it's a failure. So there emerges this parallel track of a national monument and the mountain bikers throw their support behind the monument because in a monument, whereas opposed to a legislative effort where in a bill, you can see the language of what is in it. Uh, you get a very clear deal of, of what's been cut in a, in a monument. The president can use his executive order through the antiquities act to designate an area after uh, citizens have shown that it's really important to them and they would like this area protected and preserved because of its cultural significance, its natural beauty, its scientific uh, features. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a citizen-led initiative, but the president has the power uh, of authority to just authorize this area. So it's, it's yet another path towards you know, conservation. And Within a monument designation, there's a management plan. There's sort of a second level to uh, access. Monument gets designated, and then uh, there's sort of a, a, a more work to be done on the management plan. But uh, we entered into IMBA and the Wood River Bike Coalition entered into a historic collaborative agreement with the wilderness groups. We signed a, a, an agreement with the Idaho Conservation League and with the Wilderness Society that said, um, we will work on this monument uh, and we agree to certain areas that should be preserved as wilderness, but we also agree to preserve the cherished mountain bike riding on Castle Peak uh, and in Ants Basin. And in those discussions, we gave up trails so that we could have the, the long, big rides, Ants Basin and Castle Peak. We prioritized those with the local mountain bikers 
Those are the iconic rides in the Boulder White Clouds, the ones that you see all the pictures from. Absolutely amazing rides. And I was really lucky to be able to ride them um, before they were taken away. So here we are. It's 2014, and there are meetings going on. Uh, Congressman Simpson is uh, sort of disturbed about the efforts of this monument. He would rather have a bill. He would rather have language in a legislative package that you can see, that you can you know, touch. And the, the monument's really taking off. There's, there's a ton of momentum behind it. Uh, all signs are leading toward the monument being designated. We have this agreement with the mountain bikers. It looks like our trails are going to be protected. And when uh, uh, Obama came to Boise, uh, Congressman Simpson had a meeting with him and uh, then uh, John Podesta and basically asked for six months. Give me six months to see if I can't get Cedra to go through one more time. I need a little bit of time. I have a bill. I've been working on it forever. Let's pump the brakes on this monument. And the Obama administration agreed, but they gave him a, a deadline. So Simpson has six months. And what he ended up doing was working with uh, Rish, uh, another Idaho lawmaker, on this bill. Uh, Rish had basically held his support off and had actively worked against the bill uh, in 2010. And when Rish came on board, um, it had more strength politically. And he met with uh, the stakeholder groups one last time with an opt-in or opt-out option. So here's the final bill. And it, it, it no longer was called CEDRA. Um, now it was called the Sawtooth Recreation Areas Act. And are you in or are you out? And deals were cut in that process that mountain bikers weren't a part of. We could not get to the table. We were looked at as sort of the only group opposing the bill simply because we weren't politically powerful enough to have our, our interests uh, looked at. So <laughs> what ended up happening was this bill got the support of Rish and the groups, and it goes to Congress. And in record time, this bill flew through the halls of Congress and was signed several weeks later by President Obama. Now, this is 2015. So... <laughs> it it was it left mountain bikers feeling used, I would say, because we had a better option. We had a 500,000 acre national monument that would have preserved the ecological integrity of the area. It would have allowed for a quiet, sustainable form of human powered recreation. Uh, it, it would have been almost twice the size of this wilderness bill that went through that was so cut up and convoluted because the motorized community was able to negotiate boundary adjustments so that not a single one of their trails uh, was closed to them. So instead of it being one contiguous area, now what you have when you look at the map is three different areas that are so contorted beyond recognition in order to keep all of these motorized existing routes open and it, it, it's tragic because it's a step backwards in the evolution of public land management, in my opinion. We had a better option. The land would have benefited from a national monument. It would have protected the entire, well, most of the East Fork of the uh, Salmon watershed. It would have, it, 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 uh, there's just so many winds here. So it, it, it's, it's really, <laughs> it was really, uh, it was really tough, honestly. A lot of the mountain biking community was felt like we were the grease on the skids to get this wilderness bill passed. I feel like we we did everything we could, but what it amounted to was a larger political machine where we, the mountain biking community, just could not scratch the surface of that process. You know, once once that bill was moving, if you're if you're on the bus then you're on the bus and we weren't on the bus. And it was really difficult to sort of oppose that bill off of the back end um, when we felt like we had a much stronger agreement. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Like I, <laughs> I feel like there's an apology owed to the, to the mountain biking community, you know, from me personally, and, and, and maybe it's appropriate from IMBA, but I, I think we did a really good job in this. This is a really important thing for us. I mean, we were able to touch lawmakers in ways that we never have been. And when we sort of picked up the pieces after, uh, we were left sort of thinking, 
what could we have done better? And I don't know if we could have done anything better. I, there's, there's a hidden strategy here, which I, I don't know if, you know, the Idaho Conservation League and the Wilderness Society really, if they were leveraging a monument for a wilderness bill, you know, that's what happened in Alaska with Anilka. They basically said, okay, well, if we're not going to get wilderness, we're just going to draw a bunch of monuments on the map and the president's going to get these things passed. And what that resulted in was a wilderness package that got passed. So I don't know if there was a larger, larger strategy there, but if there was that, that's heartbreaking as well, because I'm a true believer in the fact that, you know, the future of conservation involves recreation and that mountain bikers and climbers and paddlers are, you know, the young people that are experiencing these lands and that are going to become future advocates for them. And the conservation community continues to alienate those people, um, continues to want it their way uh, and not bend on some things where we have a better solution, like the monument and the Boulder White Cloud. To have that rug pulled out from underneath you sucked, for sure. There's no doubt about it. But uh, at the same time, this process started back in you know 1972, as we've learned. And really, you know, with Congressman Simpson introducing CEDRA in 2004, the mountain bikers weren't there. They weren't a part of the conversation until 10 years later. And was it too little too late? I don't know. Uh, was it the larger political you know, debate going on about, about President Obama designating a monument in a very conservative state? I, I think that played a huge hand, uh, you know, and it was, a, it was a tough one to swallow for sure. It's an incredible story and it, and it, you know, there's a, there's a few things in it, you know, it's a, I think it highlights the importance of something like the Outdoor Alliance, you know, making what is still a relatively small group. I mean, mountain bikers are not a huge percentile of the population, but, but when we combine ourselves with other outdoor groups, you know, we increase that, that footprint for sure. We increase that, uh, that, that push that we may have. And the, the politics of, of all of this is, is really interesting as well, because you, you take something that is unique when it comes to, to land use, um, national monuments coming from the executive branch. You know, it's really the only time that I'm aware of that, that the executive branch of government is going to influence land boundaries like that as far as recreation goes you know normally we go through that slow process of going through congress and and or you know at a, at a micro scale going through local municipal government and and that is you know people always use the term glacial and and i i always think that's a little bit disrespectful because glacial is a lot slower but um it's a slow process for sure but then at the same time this went very quickly uh, you know, it, it flipped all of a sudden and, and to do something in less than six months uh, and to push this through Congress. And you mentioned it was introduced first in, in, um, in, when was it 99? I believe it was 99, but then there was a break. And from 2004 to 2013, CEDRA was introduced every single year. So I think it had, I think it had a legislative history of more than a decade with you know, a dozen or more introductions. Yeah. And then really to just come down to politics. And we always talk about how mountain biking is, is bipartisan, but this really was uh, a, a political partisan move that happened. You know, we, this was a, a Democratic president and a Republican kind of, in a lot of ways, butting heads by the sounds of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, to be to be fair to the conservation community, to the Wilderness Society and the Idaho Conservation League, you know, they they obviously want wilderness. And that's that's very, very transparent. So while the coalition that was built for the monument was very powerful and included mountain bikers and the Outdoor Alliance, and it seemed at that time that that path forward was more viable, they never stopped working on the wilderness bill. And, you know, that like their ultimate goal is to get wilderness protected. So of, of course, when it came down to it and the bill gets introduced, they're going to testify positively and they're going to ramp up their machine and, you know, support the wilderness bill however they can. What I think hurt 
in the relationships between those organizations and IMBA and the mountain biking community was that no olive branch in that, in, in the period of which the legislation was moving forward was extended. The coalition and the agreements that were made in the parallel track with the monument were abandoned and they tucked tail and they ran and they, they got behind the wilderness bill 100% and it happened so quickly. We were sort of left, you know, holding the monument coalition papers in our hand, like, what about this? And, you know, it, it really shows long-term mountain bikers and recreationists, human-powered recreationists, I will argue, are the future of conservation. I think the era of pure wilderness bills, I think the nail in the wilderness bill coffin was just driven home with the boulder white clouds. And in, in some ways, we'll see how this plays out in the future. But I, I think that the writing is on the wall for the conservation community to work with mountain bikers and the recreation community on the remaining roadless areas and coming up with solutions to protect them from development and extractive resources to you know, maintain that primitive experience and it, like the essential biodiversity and the economic or the ecologic stability. I, I really do think that um, long-term strategy, the Wilderness Society missed out on this one. I think um, they wanted the immediate result of 300,000 acres, and that is a huge win for them. But the repercussions of that, I think, are coming back to bite them. They didn't realize what sort of waves that would create. They're now having to kind of clean up a little bit of that mess. So it'll be really interesting in the next decade to see how conservation and how land designations play out in this country to see who's at the table to see what those designations look like what tools are being used you know one thing that imba is really excited about right now is a bill that just got introduced before congress broke for recess called the recreation not red tape act and and i want to know more about this recreation not red tape act but before we get to that, just moving forwards after the boulder white clouds, what what does the future look like? You know, what what lessons have we learned as mountain bikers? I there's a the timeline for the boulder white clouds, it's so long and I want to make sure that that that's delivered in sort of an articulate and concise way um because it's really important I think that mountain bikers understand the history of the area because we were late, you know, we were late to the game and <laughs> we, we did what we could in sort of the 11th hour. Um, but there was a lot of momentum behind Cedra starting in the late nineties and the early two thousands where mountain bikers just weren't present. And I think that the teaching lesson there is you never know when the next Boulder white clouds is going to happen. And you have to have the relationships, your ear to the ground, the positive working interactions and relationships with your land managers and your local uh, county commissioners. And like, I can't stress enough how a positive reputation and, you know, a really positive solution oriented look on, on land management with, with mountain biking goes. I think mountain bikers for the longest time have shown up late. And when we realize that our trails are threatened, we, you know, we, we hit the nuclear option. We try and blow up the process or get to the table and we're fighting for scraps and it, it shouldn't be that way. And it, it doesn't have to be that way. I think the proactive solutions are staying engaged, knowing how to navigate the planning process and the political process and, and just being kind <laughs> And, and, and understanding that, you know, you're not going to get everything you set out for and you should be okay with that. You know, like other people aren't going to get what they want either. If you get 80%, you're doing pretty damn good. If you get 50%, you're doing okay. And that's just the reality of it. I think we have become so ingrained with trail loss that we expect it. And that's a horrible thing, you know, fighting for the status quo just to preserve the trail access that we have right now seems ridiculous. It's 2017. Like we should, 
we should be fighting for, you know, additions to wilderness in areas where it doesn't affect us and additions to trail systems where we want those things. And the conservation community should be our leading partner in helping us get those things. And I think everything has just become so politically driven. And so there's just these wedges that get driven between us that don't need to be there. Meanwhile, we feel like a bronze level supporter. Like we're always just sort of held off until the end and never, you know, a full partner, never, never trusted. And, you know, they'll ask for our support when it benefits them. But we're, we're just this bronze level sort of younger brother. And they're like, okay, that's really great that you want to support this and that you want to work with us, but just let us do it. You know, we're, we're here, the guardians of the galaxy. Um, we, we have the keys to the landscape. We, we do this as a profession. And I just really hope that, you know, if there are any, <laughs> anyone from the wilderness society or from in the conservation community that they, they sort of realize that we're, we're here and willing to work with them. We're willing to put in as much effort as they are. Um, but we need to be invited and we have to build that trust up. And that's I, the, the, the trust, in my opinion, was kind of shattered in the Boulder White Clouds. Um, and that's where that long term strategy comes into play is they they could have stuck out an olive branch um, and said, you know, the mountain bikers have been working on this really hard. We should work with them on this wilderness package. But they cut ties and they they basically threw us under the bus. And to me, the long-term strategy there is going to bite them in the ass. I mean, we're seeing the repercussions of that with the Sustainable Trails Coalition and their bills that have been introduced. I guarantee if the Boulder White Clouds had more favorable results to mountain bikers, if we were able to preserve Ants Basin, Castle Divide, if we were able to make that a success story, the Sustainable Trails Coalition wouldn't exist right now, guaranteed. But that was the match. That was the match that lit the dynamite. And they've been extremely successful in rallying their base and getting people, you know, to write congressmen. And they, they've got a bill. They have two bills. You know, like, that's a real world, <laughs> that's a real world repercussion of what happens when you, when you decide to take the short end run and not think long term. And that's their mess that they have to clean up now, you know, like, that they have to deal with that. Um, they're now spending a lot of money and resources to lobby against the Sustainable Trails Coalition bill. So, yeah, I mean, with ex- with every action, there is an opposite and equal reaction. And I, I think that they got, you know, um, glossy eyed and uh, and excited about the possibility to add 300,000 acres of wilderness when they could have had 700,000 acres of national monument and talk about the conservation benefit, the motorized community didn't lose a single trail. The reason why there are three different wilderness areas in the Boulder White Clouds are because the motorized community cut a deal with Senator Risch to allow for all of their routes to remain open. And that made corridors between the three wilderness areas. So you tell me what's better for the wilderness and the wilderness experience human powered bicycles that are quiet or motorcycles that are able to go in between three wilderness areas that are much louder and destructive to the trails. It just seems to me like it just seems to me like the mountain biking community um, was sort of patted on the head and was like, nice try. um, But you're not politically powerful enough to like actually influence this. Though when the buck comes to stop, it's disheartening. But at the same time, (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, that's the bed that they made and some people are happy with it and some people are really pissed with it. And there's a lot of theories as to what that means to wilderness moving forward. Um, like I said, I, I think personally that the era of wilderness bills is over. I think that the Boulder White Clouds put that nail in the coffin and it's rallied mountain bikers nationwide around the issue and never, never have mountain bikers been so organized to be opponents to wilderness as they have been right now. They created this problem, you know? (laughs) So yeah, we're going to push back on future wilderness bills if it affects us. And now we have, you know, a new crop of people that are more interested in the wilderness debate. You know, the sustainability of the sustainable trails coalition community is effective in social media and rallying their base. 
And I, I can imagine that if there's ever another wilderness bill that's introduced, it's going to be even it's going to be met with even more opposition from the mountain bike community than it has in the past. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's interesting to see the perceptions of a lot of mountain bikers out there. That there's definitely the incorrect perception that STC is is a competing organization uh, with IMBA. Like it's it's like it's going to replace IMBA, and it's right. You know, when you dig into it, it's it's not anything like IMBA at all. It's a it's a one topic kind of group, and and really, if they can get their way that's the end of, of the group. Um, it's, it's not yeah. something, you know, IMBA is, is day in, day out, constantly there, uh, making sure that we aren't late to any of these issues and, and any of these problems where STC is, is, is not like that at all. But, but there's also this, this kind of, um, this discussion that it's one or the other, that you support one or the other. And, and is there, like, if, if STC were to get, their way is there going to be negative repercussions for mountain biking that's a really interesting question and actually to you know to to follow that question with a question and something that i've asked you know members of the wilderness society and these state-based wilderness groups is in in this parallel universe let's assume the stc is successful that their bill passes what is the conservation community's response? Do they now accept mountain bikers, the millions of mountain bikers that are out there willing to do trail work and invest in more conservation efforts to maybe expand, double, triple the number of wilderness acres? You, you, you remove a barrier to wilderness like that, and now they've become supporters. Does the conservation or organizations, does the conservation community accept that? Do they just say, okay, nice game, mountain bikers, welcome to our world. Let's work <laughs> together. You know, that's a really interesting question. I've thought a lot about that. And Or is it the curmudgeon old guard that is like, I can't believe this, you know, and they never want to shake hands and play in the same sandbox together. You know, they're, they're like, their nose goes up and they're like, oh our pristine experiences ruined forever. We'll never work with you. And if I ever see you out there, I'm just going to shake my walking stick at you or whatever. Mm. It's a really interesting thought experiment. Does it benefit mountain bikers? For sure. I think there's a ton of trail that's worthy of mountain biking within wilderness areas. Do I think personally mountain bikes should be allowed in the existing wilderness areas? No, I don't. Um, I, I would actually hate to see that for a number of reasons. I think this is me talking. This is my personal feeling on this. If I had a perfect world, the areas that are currently designated wilderness stay wilderness, no wheels, and that's what wilderness is. We create a new designation in areas where mountain bikes have become established because in a lot of these areas, Boulder White Clouds not being one of them, mountain bikes were never ridden in, in a ton of these areas. Some of them are extremely rugged. Remember, wilderness is a lot of times rock and ice. It was kind of the leftover landscapes that couldn't be logged when we were nation building, you know, when we were expanding and settling the West. All of the good timber went first. The rivers were dammed. The remaining lands that were really hard to get into or didn't have much economic value were created as wilderness. And since then, we've sort of put different parameters around that. But from a timeline standpoint, mountain bikes didn't get established in a lot of the original wilderness areas and haven't been established in those areas since. The White Clouds being one of those exceptions and maybe some other areas in the Southwest that have been designated. But for the most part, you know, we've never been never really ridden in those areas. And I know other people will counter that with the, the STC philosophy, and th that's fine. We can argue that all you want. But in, in my personal philosophy, this National Recreation Areas designation, or it, it needs to be stickier. It needs to be like, you know, backcountry designation, something that's cool, something that we can get behind, like wilderness, you know. National Recreation Area might not be the appropriate title, but we come up with like a backcountry designation that is the exact same thing as wilderness. No jet boats, no airplanes, no any of that. 
but you can ride mountain bikes there. It's human powered and quiet, you know, no snowmobiles, no dirt bikes, none of that. It'd be like a category one B I think in the um, international scale, but it would allow mountain bikes. And Canada has that, like the Chilcotins. I just rode in that area. I mean, that's one of the reasons I went up to the Chilcotins was to experience that. It's a wilderness park. All of the signs in the Chilcotins use the word wilderness. It's the, the exact same rules apply, except you can ride your bike there. And it just felt so right, Brent. Like, I was just like, yes. Like, this is like, this is what it should feel like. You know, this, I don't feel like an outlaw. I don't feel like I'm, I have to ride this area now because I fear that it'll be ripped away from me in the future. Like I can keep going back to the Chilcotins and keep, you know, bonding with that area, keep making lasting memories with that area, ride all those trails, like admire the geology and like the topography. I mean, all of it is just, that's why I go there, you know, like huge nine hour rides with 10,000 feet of elevation gain loss that's like that and it just feels so right <laughs> it just feels so right and i don't know i sometimes i just think well we should just grandfather bikes into future wilderness you know maybe that's the appropriate path is we don't mess with the wilderness act we don't you know like the stc model is flawed and we should just work on grandfathering bicycles into trails that they already have established like jet boats are allowed on the salmon river and uh, there are uh, old airstrips that, you know, public airstrips that you can land on in Idaho. There are tons of grandfathered things in lots of wilderness areas. The inconsistency to me is, I think, the biggest headache, you know, like Anilka in Alaska, Alaska National Land a Bill that effectively doubled the wilderness acreage. It added a loads of, I can't remember the exact acreage, but it, it essentially doubled the number of acres, but it allowed snowmobiles and landing of aircraft and fish hatcheries and a mine. All of that was, those are compromises that were made in order to get, you know, 40,000 acres, whatever it was of wilderness. So, you know, if those kinds of deals are to be cut and if those are watermarks along the way, I'd like to see a wilderness bill grandfather mountain bikes in on a trail where it's been established. I think there's a ton of creativity here. It's just, we're willing to do that. You know, we are totally willing to, to get into the weeds and come up with these really fun, creative solutions that work. It's just the, the other side oftentimes doesn't want to play ball. Like they, it's wilderness or nothing for them. And I think that's, that's a bummer. <laughs> I think that's a bummer for a number of reasons, man. I mean, it's the human construct for one, you know, you're trying to tell me that the framers of the constitution were smarter than Howard Zonheiser. Um, the constitution was written so that it could be amended. If it didn't work for the current generation, it should be crumpled up and thrown out the window and rewritten so that it is it, so that it works for the, for the people in the present day. And it's been, that has been done, you know, like we have amended our constitution many, 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 many times. And this sacred document that people have held on to this wilderness act is, I, I, it, it's almost like they're, it's almost they're creating their own uh, hailstorm that's coming down the road. So I, I don't know, I can go on and on and on about this, Brent, but uh, I'll shut up for now because obviously I'm passionate about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I think, I think maybe the word wilderness makes a lot of people impassioned about it. I, I think maybe if you don't have uh, trail loss next to you, or maybe if you even don't have a wilderness area next to you, when you think of wilderness, you, you think of, so that sounds like a great place to go ride your bike. And I've, and I've heard this argument from a lot of people where what we think is is wilderness for those of us that might not live next to it um we we just think that well where i go ride my bike is is the wilderness of course i want to go ride my bike in wilderness but we're talking about rugged areas and yeah and you know when you look at i when you explore something like trail forks and you look at the the trails that are out there and you add that land manager that land use layer to the map uh, you know, the, there's, there's obviously no trails in wilderness on trail forks, but then you bring up that heat map and, and there's no people 
riding in wilderness on the heat map there's there's really like you can see how trails just skirt the edges of them they go around them there's there's not that even when you go onto onto something like Strava there's not heat maps blowing up in wilderness areas there's not people riding right. in these places but the word wilderness sounds like something that would be great to go ride in totally Totally. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the connotation that goes with the word wilderness is, is endearing and it's, it's alluring. Like people want to, yeah, it's a, it's a great word. It's a great, I mean, it, it, it totally, it gets, it, it's misconstrued in a lot of ways, you know, and it's somewhat subjective to your own you know, personal experiences and what you value and what you would call wilderness. I mean, People in the East, um, where there's not a whole lot of wilderness, congressionally designated capital W wilderness, does that mean that they don't have a primitive, unconfined, natural experience when they're in a, a, a park or, or even you know a little undeveloped patch of land outside their their house? Like it's and the Wilderness Act was written vaguely, intentionally. They. It, it, it took 40 years to define what wilderness character it is. And if you read the act, it reads like poetry. I mean, it, it is a beautiful act. I mean, it, it is, it, you know, I almost have it memorized. And it's, it, it's an astonishing piece of legislation that is very progressive it, it, and I think essential. I mean, I really do think it is essential. But at the same time, it was written in a way that left a lot of things undefinable and, you know, scientists and, uh, and, and, and the scholars had to pick apart the act to figure out what are they getting at here? What are they really trying to say? Like with, you know, primitive and unconfined and untrammeled, the word untrammeled <laughs> is in the wilderness act, which you know, means unshackled. There's a lot of unique words in there. And in, in combination, there's a document out there that's actually called Managing for Wilderness Character that was written in 2004, I believe, um, by Peter Landris and the guys at the uh, Aldo, or Arthur Carhart, or I'm sorry, Aldo Leopold um, uh, Research Station. And they define what wilderness character is. There are four qualities to wilderness character. And I mean, it, <laughs> think about that for a minute. Like scholars took 40 years to define what wilderness character is so that a land managers can manage for those things so that we have some like way to see, are we positively managing for wilderness character? Are we negatively managing for wilderness character? Are these areas getting wilder or are they getting less wild? Why? And there's, I mean, there's, there's a whole institutions built on wilderness management and teaching wilderness management and it's fascinating once you get into the weeds with it all. But at the same time, it's like <laughs> when you have to break it down into those individual components uh, and, and, and define each you know, nut and bolt that's in the act itself to get a better sense of why the act is written and for what purposes. You know, mountain bikes, obviously, and recreation were never really a part of that equation. The juxtaposition here is that Recreation is the conduit to experience wilderness without hiking or horseback riding or a float plane or a raft or a kayak or backcountry skis. You can't experience these landscapes. It's a museum without doors or windows. And if that's what the hardcore wilderness community wants, then let's designate that as a research science area and ban humans. Let's actually make it a scientific polygon on the map that no one can go into strictly for you know the bio the biocentric reasons or the, the 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 ecocentric reasons and russia has this there are a lot of places unesco heritage sites where you just can't go <laughs> and i'm fine with that you know i think that's totally fine i think we should have carbon sinks in areas where grizzly bears should do whatever the hell they're going to do and wolverines and you know spawning salmon i think we should not fuck with a lot of these places personally but to categorically exclude a group of people based on ideology, that, <laughs> that's the sticking point. You know, it's like someone arbitrarily at some point said, okay, we're going to draw the line here. And that's that. 
And it feels unfair to a lot of people. At the same time, I mean, I feel like I'm wishy-washy here on this because a lot of my language here is like, you would, you would assume that I want bikes in wilderness areas, right? But the way that I'm talking like this, but I don't mainly because I worked on wilderness trails for about a decade. And I know <laughs> what the wilderness trails are like in Idaho and Montana, and they're not suitable for mountain bikes. <laughs> not at all. Like maybe of the 2000 miles of trail that are in, you know, the Frank church, 10 or 12 miles would be great for a mountain bike. Uh, and maybe some people are okay with like hopping over, you know, a lot of logs, thousands of logs and having trails that haven't been maintained in decades and having to route find. And to me, that's not a good mountain bike experience. I mean, to me, a good mountain bike experience is like going to Canada and riding purpose-built mountain bike trails that are challenging, that also have great views that give me up to the Alpine, you know, all of those things combined. But there's actually some flow and some fun and some features that are built with mountain bikes in mind. Like I'd much rather ride those trails than jump over logs and get lost. And <laughs> I don't know. It's, 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 it's an interesting juxtaposition, man. It's yeah, it's, it's super interesting. Definitely. So on July 26, Ron Wyden, a Democrat Senator from Oregon, and Representative Rob Bishop, a Republican from Utah, introduced the Recreation Not Red Tape Act to Senate. Now, what is Recreation Not Red Tape? It does a number of things. This is uh, the second iteration of Recreation Not Red Tape. So yeah, you'd mentioned a senator, a Democratic senator from Oregon, that's Senator Ron Wyden, and Representative Rob Bishop, who is a Republican from Utah. They've introduced this bill, and it does a lot of things. It deals with outfitting permits. Um, it deals with uh, recreation in the mission of agencies that typically don't have it. For example, uh, obscure land management agencies like the Army Corps of Engineers, sometimes they manage dams or like the Bureau of Reclamation, where there'll be a, a, you know, a large-scale a civil engineering project, but there'll also be a small park next to that project. They manage the lands around those areas. Those agencies don't have recreation in their mission. So that would lead to increased partnerships with new agencies, potential new trail development opportunities, um, which is really cool because there's a ton of these areas out west and, and out east as well. The biggest thing that the mountain biking community should be aware of and the biggest draw for IMBA is the Recreation Not Red Tape establishes a bike-friendly system of national recreation areas. It would grandfather in 26 current recreation areas, and it would create a process to inventory and recommend lands for future additions to a national recreation areas system. So it's, it's really similar to how the Wilderness Act works. So the Wilderness Act of 64 was what we call an enabling piece of legislation. So what that did was it, it created a national wilderness preservation system. So it, it creates a framework for how to inventory and recommend lands to be included as wilderness. And that starts with the agencies. So when there's a planning process or a, 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 like a forest plan revision, the agencies look at every acre of land within that forest or that range, and they look at the acres that are suitable for timber harvest and that are critical for habitat, that are suitable for recreation. And they also look at lands that are suitable for, uh, for wilderness. So there's a, there's a process that the agency goes through to inventory those acres and then recommend those acres to be included as wilderness. And then from, from that standpoint, once that forest plan has been approved and signed and put into effect, that's sort of the foundation for future wilderness legislation. So if a conservation organization really wants to get some acres of wilderness, um, they look to the forest plan first and they look to the polygons where recommended wilderness already exists. So, now let's talk about the Recreation Not Red Tape Act. This is the exact same process that would uh, follow suit, but 
under the recreation lens. So right now, the agencies are not mandated to inventory and recommend lands for recreation. They do that for wilderness. What we're trying to accomplish here is getting the agencies to inventory and recommend lands that are high quality lands for recreation, for non-motorized recreation, for motorized recreation. So essentially this would create a, a, a future designation. Um, well, there's, there's, there is a current national recreation areas designation, but it's actually, there's no consistency there. There's no, there's really no guidelines to creating a national recreation area. And this would create that framework um, to have those acres looked at under a recreation lens recommended to become recreation, national recreation areas. And then in the future, you know, if there's a legislative proposal, we have that administrative framework, the acres on the map that have gone through that administrative process to then recommend those areas as a higher level conservation management area or a national monument or you know, any number of protective designation that is bike friendly. So this is, it's pretty close to, you know, mountain bikers fantasize about wilderness B, like wilderness plus bikes. This is about as close to that as we've ever gotten. And considering that both of these lawmakers sit on their natural resource committees and Rob Bishop, uh, Rob Bishop is actually the, uh, the chair of the house natural resources committee, which is he gets to introduce these pieces of legislation. He gets to decide which ones move forward, which ones will get a hearing. To have him co-sponsoring this bill is extremely important because it sets this bill up uh, for a higher degree of success. So, yeah, it's, it's a super exciting time for us. We've been working on this for years through the Outdoor Alliance Coalition. It's not just IMBA on its own, but this is yet another example of this coalition of national human-powered recreation groups that are, you know, standing up for the places that we love to play, wanting to protect them in perpetuity and making sure that the access that we currently have um, is preserved or enhanced. Yeah, and this seems like a really proactive solution. So a land manager like the Forest Service, for example, is is going to be able to, to recommend uh, a space for recreation and instead of potentially recommending that space for wilderness and then and then the the fight to begins to kind of adjust that and change it 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 kind of really gives us it sets us up for success yes it does and it well it, it builds the framework for for future success i mean you you have to play within the rules right you have to play the cards that you're dealt and this is a hand that we're playing that will I think advance recreation on public lands. It'll put a, um, not a priority, but it will elevate the landscapes that are already being used. It, it, you know, it'll, it'll make them more consistent. It'll make the management of them more consistent. And it, it's definitely a proactive play, um, which in this Congress and in, in this administration is, is something that's really unique <laughs> and, and challenging at the same time. But there's, you know, there's not a whole lot of momentum uh, moving conservation of public lands forward right now. I think there's a lot of emphasis on defending what we have as, you know, the administration keeps fulfilling positions in the USDA, in the interior. We're, we still don't have a clear picture of what their goals and intents are. We know that energy development is a priority. Secretary Zinke has said that uh, this administration's made it pretty clear that they want um, America to be energy dominant uh, on the global scale, and that means, you know, extracting resources. And I, I say this to chapter leaders and to mountain bikers all the time: like, all the access in the world is meaningless if the experience is horrible. Like, we could have all the trails that we want, but if they're winding through oil derricks and clear cuts and subdivisions what's the point? <laughs> and maybe some people are okay with that. I personally am not, but I'm also a Westerner that's lived in, you know, Western States my entire life. I've grown accustomed to backcountry trails and that sort of, you know, more wild experience. I love stacked loops, but my passion is riding in the backcountry. And, 
yeah, I, I don't want those things. I, I don't think mountain bikers in general want those things. I think it's pretty clear that we're, uh, we, we are conservation minded. You know, we do need to push back on the experiences that we want to have. Like we, we need to defend the experiences that we want to have, I guess I should say. And these proactive strategies like this legislation is, is one way to do it. A shout out to Ron Wyden and Rob Bishop. Thank you. If you live in Oregon or Utah, send these guys an email and thank them. Uh, I know it's kind of weird given Rob Bishop's background <laughs> and some of his intentions for public lands, but they could use the support right now. And if you live in another state that has a senator or a congressman or congresswoman that are recreationists, set up a meeting, send send an email or, or call their, their office aide and, and see what they think about this bill and see if they'd be willing to co-sponsor or we're looking for, you know, new new co-sponsors always. Uh, the more sponsors we have on this bill, especially from both sides of the aisle, the stronger it's going to be moving. This is a chance for mountain bikers to really step up and uh, and support a piece of legislation that would it would it would turn the tides. It would it, this is a, a watermark. If we can get this passed, this is going to <laughs> this is going to positively impact mountain biking for decades, generations to come. I mean, this is a really, really important piece of legislation. So. That's great. And I think we should end this on a, on a positive note because I, I think those, that's great news for, for all mountain bikers out there. And, and Eric, I just want to thank you for taking the time to, uh, to speak with me uh, and to share this, uh, this with us. Hey, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on Frontlines. I think what you guys are doing here is amazing. And yeah, really grateful to be able to share my experiences and my thoughts. So thanks, Brent. I feel like something that should be noted in this argument, and, and Eric brought it up, backcountry trails are just one type of mountain bike experience. And for him, that's what defines mountain biking. And as mentioned by others, including on this show, mountain bikers are not just one group. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't help each other protect whatever each of us defines as mountain biking. Eric mentioned that if you lived in Oregon, then you should email Senator Ron Wyden. And if you live in Utah, then email Congressman Rob Bishop. Included in the show notes are links to their contact pages and Twitter and Facebook pages, respectively. You'll also find links to IMBA and, like always, a link to donate and support the show via PayPal. In order to ensure that this podcast can continue these discussions and future ones, I rely on donations from listeners like you. As a follow-up to the Wilderness episode, I'll be including feedback at the end of episode 28. And if you want to add your thoughts, concerns, or perspective, then send me an email or an audio file at frontlinesmtb at gmail.com. And I really want to know where you stand on this topic. You can also find the show Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at frontlinesmtb. And if you haven't already, give those accounts a like or a follow, share them with your friends and fellow advocates. And while you're at it, leave a review and rating on iTunes. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It helps others find the show. Next episode will be my interview with the president of the Sustainable Trails Coalition, Ted Stroll. And during our discussion with Eric, he mentioned a recent trip that he made to the Chilcotins. And we'll be hearing from Nahid Henderson, Director of Communications and Development at Tyax Adventures. Among other things, Tyax is a backcountry mountain biking outfitter, and they drop clients into the remote wilderness of British Columbia's Coast Mountain by float plane in the middle of a provincial park. We'll hear how wilderness and mountain biking can coexist together. Announced at the end of September is the newly appointed chapter representation on the IMBA board, Ernie Rodriguez. Ernie is the president of the very successful Mid-Atlantic Off-Road Enthusiasts, also known as Moore, in the Virginia area. We're excited to hear that news. Intro music is once again by Lee Rosevere. And this week, our outro music is performed by Eric Bruce. And like always, production notes by Jennifer Pride. This month, we lost Tom Petty, and I thought it would be a fitting tribute to change up the outro of the show. So here's a cover of a classic performed by Eric Bruce. I've included a link to Eric in the show notes. Big thanks to him for letting us use the track. So this song goes out to the Albury Wadonga Mountain Bike Club and the Fraser Valley Mountain Bikers Association and all other organizations who are working their butts off to either gain access or keep access to their trails. So like always, 
I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails. Well, I won't.